Go ahead and take your seats. Church, good to see you. Uh, Good to be gathered here. Good to be uh, with you on the live stream at home and on demand this week. Um, Let's get our Bibles out, whether you have the uh, paper version or it's on your phone or iPad. Uh, Let's get the Word of God out. And the notes, of course, are at hbc.info if you want to follow along with the message and and make notes along the way as well. We're going to look at... um, We're in this series, The Power of the Gospel, in Romans 1 to 8, and we're going to look at chapter 4 today. And uh, sometimes when you're just deciding what the theme is going to be, it's as easy as looking how many times a certain word is used in the passage. And in our passage today, the word faith is used. We're going to look at 25 verses in just a moment, but uh, 11 times the word faith is used, and another seven times the word believe or belief is used. And so you just kind of look at that and you kind of know right out of the gate Uh, We're looking at faith today as this aspect of of the gospel. And uh, people have a faith in a lot of different things. Uh, People have, uh, you know, we could say like, I I have faith in myself, you know, so we have faith in ourselves. We could have faith in others, or we could, I've heard this often, you've heard this, you know, I just have faith in humanity. And I go, that's not really a great thing to have faith in. But, you know, a lot of people say that I have faith in humanity, or people have faith in God, or faith in gods, or faith in religion, or a lot of people, you know, I have, I believe in science, you know, I have faith in science. And if we look at a basic definition of faith, this is from the Cambridge Dictionary, uh, faith is great trust or confidence in something or someone. Okay, great trust or confidence in something or someone. And when we think about uh, how the Bible views faith, you, you immediately think about Hebrews chapter 11 and that sermon that the preacher preached, the manuscript we have in the book of Hebrews. And in chapter 11, he talks specifically about faith. And he adds a component to that basic definition, this idea that the object of our faith is actually unseen. And if, in fact, in Hebrews 11.1, 1, he says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. So not realized. It's the assurance of things hoped for and the um, conviction of things not seen. And when we know that the object of our faith is Jesus Christ, we don't see Jesus today. We're, we're not going to see him in this lifetime. We're, we're going to see him unless he, unless he comes through the clouds. We're not going to see him in this lifetime. We'll see him in eternity when we see him face to face. And so the object of our faith is unseen. And so we could take that basic definition from the Cambridge Dictionary, and we could say this for us, faith is great trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ, okay? That's what faith is uh, for us. And in order to experience the power of the gospel, which we're looking at in this series, these 16 facets of the gospel, we must exercise faith in Christ because the bottom line, again, according to the preacher in Hebrews, the bottom line is, Hebrews 11, 6, without faith, it is impossible to please God. There's no other way to please God. If you're, you know, thinking, you know, there's another way I could please God. If I could, if I could do these works or I could do this thing or if I could live this life, I could please God that way. And flat out, the answer from Scripture is no. There's no other way to please God except by faith. Now, all of that relates to Romans chapter 4 again, which is all about faith And Paul guides us now at this point in his letter to look at the life of Abraham. And it's the entire chapter is kind of looking at Abraham's life as an example of everything he's been talking about um, up to date and, and, and specifically about Abraham's faith, making the point that justification or salvation, this relationship that we can have with God, only comes by faith. In other words, no one is being reconciled to God and every single human being needs to be reconciled to God, but no one is being reconciled to God apart from faith. We must have faith in Him. We must believe in Jesus Christ. And so, no one's being reconciled apart from that. Not Abraham, not you, not me, no one. Every single person on earth has to have faith in Jesus Christ to be reconciled to God. That's the point of Romans 4. And so, let me read the text for us. It's Again, it's 25 verses, so, um, you know, Settle in for a second here as I read these verses, and then we'll begin to look at what it looks like to have faith in Christ. Romans 4. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. 
And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? Well, it was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that the righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring would be uh, that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression." That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. All right, we're going to look at this matter of faith. I must have faith in Christ. First of all, I must have faith in Christ to be forgiven. Now, this is important because this is our number one need, to be forgiven. We could uh, look through um, all of the needs that we think we have, the need to eat, the need to be in relationship, the need to be loved, all these things that we could look at, the need to have meaningful employment. I have all these needs, the need for leisure, the need for rest, the need for money, all these needs that I might have. But the number one need that every single human being has is to be forgiven. And the reason for that is the number one problem that we have is sin. All the other problems that we might have in our life are secondary or tertiary to this idea that we are sinners in need of forgiveness. So the number one need we have is to be forgiven because the number one problem we have is that we have sinned. So I must have faith in Christ to be forgiven. And he's using this example of Abraham. You can see in verse 1, he brings Abraham into the discussion to illustrate this point, mostly for the Jewish members of this church in the city of Rome. He's writing to this church, and he's addressed both Gentiles and Jews along the way. But he really is focusing at this point on the Jewish believers. So Jewish people had become convinced of their Messiah and joined the church and become Christians. And Gentile pagans who were part of the city of Rome, they became convinced of Jesus and became part of the church. So the church had both Jews and Gentiles both in it. But again, his focus right here, he's, he's turning his attention specifically to the Jews. And so he uses an example that they would understand. Abraham, their father. Verse 2, if Abraham, he says, was justified by works, he has something to boast about. If, if you could earn your salvation by doing good things, by being a moral person, then you would literally have a good reason to puff out your chest. If you were a super moral person and lived this upstanding life and, and, and gave to the poor and served them and, and, and just lived this exemplary, holy, righteous life, then you would have reason to puff out your chest before people and just say, hey, look at me, man, I am living it out. 
But that kind of boasting doesn't get you anywhere with God, and that's what Paul says. You could boast to one another, look how great I am, look how good I am, look how moral I am, but not before God. You see, Paul's already established that we're saved by faith, not by works, and that we actually have nothing to boast about. He's made that case in the previous chapters, and he's laid the foundation for that through the Holy Scriptures, like through the Old Testament. And he takes them back to the Old Testament again in verse 3. He says, for what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God. Not Abraham worked. Not Abraham was holy. Not Abraham was moral. Not that Abraham did all these great things. Abraham believed God. Abraham had faith, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And if you're taking notes right here, just jot down Genesis 15, 6, because that's where that quote comes from. And in verse 4, he goes on to say, he uses this illustration of the paycheck. And many of you went to work this week, and you earned your paycheck. You went to work, you worked for an employer, maybe on Friday that money was e-transferred into your account or you got a paycheck and you earned that. That's, Paul makes the point, that's, that's not a gift. You worked for it and it is your due, he says at the end of the verse. That's not what we're talking about here. You can't earn it. There is no salvation paycheck that's coming your way. Because, verse 5, the one who does not work but simply believes in him not thinking I bring anything to the table with, re- with regard to my salvation. I simply exercise faith in God. I just believe what He says, and who He is. Believes in Him, Jesus, who justifies the ungodly. And um, His faith, His or her faith, is counted as righteousness very simply. Now, He's talking about faith here, and He's talking about forgiveness as a result of our faith. And Abraham is the example, but then you know, Paul, as he's writing this, he runs into a bit of a problem because if you're using Abraham as the example, Abraham actually, if you look back in the Old Testament, he had a couple little slip-ups, a couple little things he did that you just kind of look and say, yeah, you you know, Abraham could have done that better. But for the most part, Abraham in the Bible is an example of, of obedience and of faith. Those would be the two words that I would attach to Abraham's life, obedience and faith. And so, there aren't like some really great examples of you know, having really crashed out and burned and really needing the forgiveness of God. We don't have that in Abraham's story. So, Paul's going like, I really need to illustrate this point that we're forgiven if we have faith. And so, who could I use as an example? So, you need to think about someone who's, you know, who really crashes and burns in the Old Testament. So, naturally, he thought about David. Because here is David, a man after God's own heart, God had selected him to become the king. And once he became the king and had conquered the people around and and had succeeded Saul and stabilized the nation and things were going really well for him, David failed. A massive moral failure on his part. And Paul uses him as the example because David understands the depth of forgiveness and that's what's helpful to us in understanding why our faith is so important how we can address that number one need of forgiveness because we have that number one problem of sin. And so, he uses David as this example because David's a wonderful example of moral failure. David, after becoming the king and and, and in his palace, David commits adultery, manipulates the situation, murders the woman's husband, implicates so many others in the conspiracy, is manipulative and and deceitful throughout the whole situation. And this, as we look in on it then, this becomes the prime example of a forgiven one, of what it means to have faith in God and to have forgiveness that comes as a result of that. So, David speaks out of his experience of being forgiven and being, verse 6, Paul still says here, um, the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. In other words, David could never have done enough works to make up for the thing that he did. He, He could, for the rest of his life, he couldn't live moral enough. He couldn't do enough good works. He couldn't give away enough money. He, could, he couldn't do anything to make up for the fact that he slept with a woman. He, he got her pregnant. He murdered her husband. He upset her entire life and, and drew so many other people into that. 
You can't make up for that. So David says, and this is Psalm 32, 1 and 2. David says, he sings, he prays. Verse 7. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. Do sins are covered or atoned for. I mean, if someone knew lawless deeds, it was David. I mean, David's writing this. And you know very well as he's writing the words, lawless deeds. What's he thinking about? Adultery, murder, deceit, manipulation. That's what he's thinking about. Because that was his list. And then he says, this is awesome. Verse 6, verse 8. Blessed is the man. Blessed is the woman against whom the Lord will not count his or her sin. How, how awesome is that? It's awesome to just like wake up every morning and just realize that you're still here and you're still a sinner and it's still going to be a battle and you're going to face temptation today. Just to think about that. And then to remember that you have faith in Christ. And to say, I'm so blessed today because today God's not going to count my sin against me. He's not going to count my sin against me. That touches me because that is me. Well, my list isn't exactly the same as David's and yours is different again. But we all have a list. We all have lawless deeds in our past. We have more lawless deeds that are going to be in front of us. And the Lord doesn't count our sins against us. When you, when you have this faith in Christ and this forgiveness that he gives, what it releases from us is this, this, um, this triad of, of evil consequences that come as a result of sin in our life. Because if you have sin in your life, and we all do, you, you have guilt, fear, and shame. This is the basis for like all of the problems we have in life. It's guilt, fear, and shame. And, and when we're forgiven... The guilt is erased and the shame is gone because Jesus took that on himself at, at Calvary. And, and we no longer have to fear that our sins are going to be held against us someday, that we're going to face the judgment of God or that we're going to be found out. All of it is covered by the blood of Christ. The guilt, fear, and shame are erased. And instead we can walk in freedom and we have victory and we have joy in Christ. And, and, and this happens at the moment of our salvation. And I remember this from my own conversion. And not everybody has the same story and I get that. But at my conversion, I felt an emptiness inside of me. I knew I was a sinner. And as the preacher spoke and I heard that word and I responded to it and raised my hand, I felt the filling of the Holy Spirit come upon me. I felt a release that I had never felt. I felt freedom that I had never had. Now, the thing is, that should come at our conversion, but there should be a growing sense of that. The longer we walk with Christ, we should have this growing sense of, I've been freed. And I don't need to be burdened any longer by my sin. I should feel on a daily basis, whenever I'm reminded of it, I should feel sin rolling off my back and the weight disappearing. And I was thinking as I wrote that down um, in my notes, this, this picture of sin rolling off the bat, off, off our backs at Calvary, I immediately thought about Pilgrim's Progress. And if you know this story, John Bunyan wrote this uh, back in the 1700s, it's an allegory of the Christian life. And I thought about that scene where Christian is coming along and um, he's coming to Calvary, he's coming to the cross. And uh, let me read it for you. Now I saw in my dream that the highway up which Christian was to go was fenced on either side with a wall, and that wall is called salvation. Up this way, therefore, did burdened Christian run but not without great difficulty because of the load on his back. He ran thus till he came at a place somewhat ascending, and upon that place stood a cross, and a little below, in the bottom, a sepulcher. So I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up with the cross, his burden loosed from off his shoulders and fell from off his back and began to tumble and so continued to do till it came 
to the mouth of the sepulcher where it fell in, and I saw it no more. Then was Christian glad and lightsome and said with a merry heart, He hath given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. Then he stood still for a while to look and wonder, for it was very surprising to him that the sight of the cross should thus ease him of his burden. He looked, therefore, and looked again, even till the springs that were in his head sent the waters down his cheeks. Now as he stood looking and weeping, behold, three shining ones came to him and saluted him with, Peace be to thee. So the first said to him, Thy sins be forgiven. The second stripped him of his rags and clothed him with a change of raiment. The third also set a mark in his forehead and gave him a roll with a seal upon it, which he bid him look on as he ran, and that he should give it in at the celestial gate. So they went their way. Then Christian gave three leaps for joy and went on singing. That should be us. That allegory is a picture, that image is a picture of of every Christian who's been to Calvary, who's had that load taken off of them and has heard the same words from the messengers of God. Do you have that joy knowing that your sins have been forgiven? And if you have faith in Christ, you should because that's what Jesus has done for you. That's what the love of God has provided us. That's what justification means to us. We are declared by faith to be righteous. As God sees you today, if you have faith in Him, as God sees you today, He sees you without sin. If only we could see ourselves that way. But God sees us as righteous and has declared us to be righteous, not on the basis of our works, but on the basis of our faith, on the basis of the finished work of Christ, because he took our guilt, fear, and shame on himself at the cross. So if only we could see ourselves the way that God sees us without our sin. And if sin continues to crush you, to weigh you down in any way, to hobble your walk. There's something that you don't yet have. There's something about your salvation that you don't yet understand about being a Christian. Find forgiveness in Christ. Find the joy that He offers when our sins are put away from us. Give Give three leaps for joy. Be lightsome. I've never used that word in a sermon. Be lightsome. Be lightsome. And go on singing. Because your sins are forgiven. I must have faith in Christ to be forgiven. And then see this next. I must have faith in Christ to be genuine. And by genuine, we we mean to be genuine in how I live my life. I, I want to be real. I want to be a real Christian and not a Christian in name only. Way too many of those. If you've been tracking with this series, you know that Paul, again, is writing to a church that has both Jewish and Gentile Christians in it. And each, each one of these were bringing their own baggage with them. In this case, they were bringing theological baggage, things that they believed before and bringing that into the church. And Paul's trying to address those things. It's not unusual for people to carry baggage around. You know what I mean by that. We all carry baggage Uh, don't we? We all have things from our past that inform our present, and those things aren't necessarily good, and that's why we call it baggage. We just carry it around with us. How many people here would be honest enough to confess that you have some baggage that you carried in with you here today? Correct. And those who did not raise their hand, it's because their hand is actually on their baggage right now. They can't even let go of their baggage to raise their hand. Everybody has baggage that they're dealing with. And the problem with, the, with baggage is that it keeps you from being genuine because you're so weighed down by carrying it around all the time. For some people, it actually keeps them from, from choosing Christ and becoming a follower of Christ. 
so gripped by their own assumptions and their own perspective of the world that they can't release all of that to look at the purity of Christ and receive Him as Lord and Savior. So he asks the question, he wants to tear all this down, he wants us to be genuine in our faith. So he says in verse 9, he asks this question, is this blessing, this blessing of forgiveness is what he's talking about, only for the circumcised? Is it only for Jewish believers? Because that's, that's some theological baggage, that's some religious baggage that you're carrying into the discussion here. Or also for the uncircumcised Gentile believers. And he goes back to his example of Abraham because Abraham was the father of nations. We'll see that in a moment. But the thing about Abraham is, and I don't know if you've thought of this, by the way, like Abraham is not Jewish. Abraham is not Jewish. I mean, Jewish doesn't come in. Israel doesn't come in for a couple of more generations after this. Abraham's not Jewish. In fact, Abraham had two sons, Isaac and Ishmael, and it was through the son Isaac that Jacob would be born, and Jacob would be, would be the one whose name would be changed to Israel you could rightfully say that the nation of Israel was started at Jacob. Abraham is a couple generations before that. Abraham also had another son. His name was Ishmael, and Ishmael is the father of the Arab people. So Abraham is also the father of all the Arab peoples of the world. Abraham had a grandson, Esau, and Esau was the father of the Edomite people. And so Abraham is the father of nations. He's not Jewish. But for the Jewish person, they do look at him as being their father. And so this is the right appeal to them to help them to break down this baggage that they have. Verse 9 continues, for we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. And this is his, he's driving his point about faith. And so to do so, he's going to talk about the timing of Abraham's faith. In other words, when did Abraham actually become a believer. And it's important to drive home the point that it's about faith and not about works. We have to see when Abraham came to faith, especially with respect to the outward sign of the covenant that was given to him. The covenant for Old Testament believers was circumcision. And so he asked the question, verse 10, how then was it counted to him? How was his righteousness counted to him? When did he get saved? That's the question. Was it before, this is Paul's words, was it before or after he had been circumcised, the outward sign of faith? And he answers, it was not after, but before he was circumcised. That's when he came to faith in Christ. In fact, almost three decades before. I mean, Abraham was living in Ur of the Chaldees, another indication that he wasn't Jewish, he was Chaldean. He, he was living in Ur of the Chaldees. That's when God called him out because he was a man of faith already. God called him out. He'd already believed God. But God puts this challenge in front of him, says, I, I, I'm going to give you a promise, but I need you to move to a different place. And Abraham, believing God in that moment, got up and he left without even knowing what the, pro, what the promise was or where the land was that he was going to. That was his moment of belief, and it, wouldn't, it would be another 29 years before they would practice the sign of the covenant, and he would be circumcised as a testimony to the belief that he had. And so, it isn't, and, and if you want to jot down the reference here, Genesis 17, 23 to 27 is when it actually happens, when he and his household, including Ishmael, are circumcised. And at that point, by the way, he gets circumcised. He's 99 years old. On behalf of all the men in the room, ouch. I'm not wrong about that, right? Ouch, that's a little uncomfortable. A little empathy. And then in fact, verse 11, he received the sign of the circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he already had by faith. While he was still uncircumcised. All those three decades, he wasn't circumcised, but he had real faith. So it's conversion, faith, and then circumcision... And he gives a reason why. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that the righteousness would be counted to them as well. It includes Gentiles, includes everybody, and also no outward sign is ever going to be enough to save you. God never intended us to be saved by simply performing the religious rituals the outward sign was always intended to reflect an inward reality. It was a sign and seal of the legitimacy of our faith. And 
God's intent was always to ensure that, this is verse 12 now, look at here, um, to ensure that we are not merely circumcised, but also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So it's genuine faith, listen now, it's genuine faith and the outward marker of that faith, both of those things. Genuine faith and the outward marker of that faith. And so that begs the question of every one of us now, as we look at Abraham, he's our father too by faith. We look at this, and now we ask the question of ourselves, twofold question now, do I have genuine faith apart from works? Do I have that? That's the first step. Do I have genuine faith apart from works? And then secondly, do I have genuine works that show my faith? Abraham had both of those. And you and I, as genuine believers, should have both of those. When people look at you, or when you do a self-assessment, do you see both of these? Do you see the genuineness of your faith playing out in the outward sign of that, that, that my faith has changed me? And our faith, if it's genuine, should withstand that empirical test, that examination. We think about what those outward marks are now for a New Testament believer. If I have genuine faith, that's the starting point. The outward sign of that, the more obvious, most obvious one is baptism. But then also from the Scriptures... I have a genuine walk with Christ. I'm seeking to live a holy life. I'm working for Christ. I give offerings. I witness for Christ. My life is the outflow of Christ. I want to be like Him. Those are all the outward signs. And do I have both of those? A genuine conversion, genuine faith in Christ, and outward signs that are showing the legitimacy of that. Does the manner of your life show the genuineness of your faith? All right, that's one and two. I must have faith in Christ to be forgiven, to be genuine. And then thirdly, look at this. We'll spend some time here. I must have faith in Christ to receive the promise. So he writes in verse 13, the promise to Abraham and his offspring. The promise, God, is, God is a promise maker, but God is also a promise keeper. Amen? Amen? Healthiness said we could say amen. Okay, so... God is the promise maker. God is the promise keeper. We know this from 2 Corinthians 1.20. Paul wrote this, you know, um, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. Or the King James was, all the promises of God are yes and amen in him. What God says he's going to do, God's going to uh, deliver on that promise. And, um, and so he makes this promise about redemption and he makes his promise about redemption right after the fall, right? We we'll go all the way back to the beginning of Genesis. The fall happens, sin enters into the world, and God makes a promise right in that moment. In other words, humanity had just ruined everything that God had made, and God says, don't worry about it. Here's the promise. I'm going to fix it. I'm going to fix it, and I'm going to let you be uh, by faith on the right side of all of this. And he kept reiterating that promise to subsequent generations. When he made that promise to Adam and, and then in the whole episode with the flood, he made that promise again to Noah. And then Abraham came along and he made the promise to Abraham and then Moses. And he made the promise to Moses. And then David became the king and he made a promise to David. And then all of it was filled and fulfilled in Christ. In other words, there was an Adamic um, covenant. There was a Noahic covenant. There was an Abrahamic covenant. There was a, a Mosaic covenant and then a Davidic covenant. And then all of it was pointing toward the Messianic covenant or the new covenant that he has with us. And the fulfillment of all these covenants, all of it pointing in redemption to Jesus Christ. But the promise doesn't apply to you. These covenants do not apply to you unless you have faith. The promise of salvation is universal in its offer, but not in its application. You have to accept it by faith. I must have faith in Christ to receive the promise of God, which then he looks at all these different aspects of the promise. We want to break down the promise and understand what does this promise deliver to me? Well, first of all, Notice this, it makes me an heir. And our status of heirs of kingdom of, uh, as, as heirs of the kingdom of God 
In other words, He's made us to be whatever other identity that you think you've had. He makes us, by faith, sons and daughters of the King. We're sons and daughters of the King. That becomes our new identity. And so, as sons and daughters of the King, we're then we're written into the will. We get an inheritance of all the riches of glory and eternity. We get that inheritance. It's all waiting for us. But this status as heirs, verse 13 continues, did not come through what we've done, but through the righteousness of faith. And he sets up this hypothetical situation, verse 14, for if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, okay, if you're a good person, moral person, working for all of this, you think you're keeping the law, okay, I'm just obeying God, I'm being a moral person. He says, if that's the way, verse 14 continues, faith is null and the promise is void. Null and void. This doesn't even matter for anything. You don't even need the promise of God if you're good enough to get there on your own. Now, why? Because we've already seen earlier in Romans what verse 15 says, that the law brings wrath. The law brings the judgment of God on us. But where there is no law, there's no transgression. In other words, the law of God, we talked about this a couple of messages ago, the law of God, think about the Ten Commandments of God, it isn't that that's the measuring stick by which we should live our lives, it is that the Ten Commandments regularly remind us that we are unrighteous, can't keep the Ten Commandments. The law points out our transgression, it points out our sin. Where there's no law, there's no transgression. The law shows us that we're sinners, it, it shows us our number one need. And again, by faith, we're not only forgiven, but then we're brought into the family of God because it's just by faith, and we're written into the inheritance, and it erases whatever former identity we have. Identity issues are huge for people. We think we're something we're not. We think we're something that's inadequate to get us the very thing we need, which is the forgiveness of our sins and and this heir, this inheritance that God offers us. We mistakenly identify ourselves in all the wrong ways. Our primary identity coming from our gender or, or our marital status or our wealth or where we work or whether we're healthy or infirmed. We, we're drawing our identity off of these things and it's unhelpful. In fact, it's part of the burden that we carry. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, your identity is as a son or daughter of the King. And that's it. Everything else is secondary to that. There's no more wondering who we are. It's the beauty of faith in Christ and what He's done is that we get this identity stamped on us. Well, the promise is also, look at this secondly, the promise also raises me from the dead. And the fact that I'm a sinner, uh, verse 16, is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace, and grace is the undeserved and unearned favor of God. It is guaranteed to all his offspring who share the faith of Abraham, not just Jews. In verse 17, the God in whom he believed, notice, who gives life to the dead. We're the dead. Right here in this room, we're the dead. That's who he's talking to. Who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. See, we who believe are the recipients of the resurrection power. We who were dead in our sins have been raised to new life, raised from the dead. And by dead, we mean two things. There are two aspects to this death. The first aspect is this spiritual death. In other words, in our sins, prior to exercising faith in Jesus Christ, we are dead in our sins, dead spiritually, and headed for a Christless eternity. That's one kind of death. Everyone is under this condemnation of spiritual death, but we also are under this condemnation of physical death. And uh, barring the return of Christ, every one of us is appointed to die. We will die physically, but when you have faith in Christ, the great news is that physical death is just the passageway. It's just the gate to eternal life with our Lord and Savior because spiritual death is no longer a problem for us because we have been resurrected from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
So that fate of both spiritual and physical death can be avoided by believing this promise that He gives to us. So the promise of salvation, that's what we're talking about here, to receive the promise. This promise makes me an heir. It raises me from the dead. It also gives me hope. We live in a hopeless world. The world is not able to guarantee anything with respect to hope. And, and in fact, I was thinking, you know, because we, not we, but I mean, the United States just went through this presidential election. I feel like we all went through it, though. Do you feel that? I feel like we all went through it. I feel like we went through the entire thing except for the voting part. And, and um, having just gone through it again, I was reflecting back, and other people were reflecting back to 12 years ago when Barack Obama was first elected as president of the United States. And you remember that his campaign was about hope, and there were posters that came out with the word hope on it, and uh, a lot of people were just so encouraged by that, and that's why he was kind of swept into power. And, um, and that phrase that kept coming out, you know, yes, we can, yes, we can, yes, we can, that was the thing, and people had such hope. And then he served for two terms, eight years. And then, four years ago, chaos erupted. Four years later, cities are burning in Portland and Minneapolis. The country couldn't be in any more turmoil. I'm not sure there has been another year in the history of the United States that was tumultuous as this year, pandemic aside. And my point in that, because I'm not partisan at all, and I don't really care who's president of the United States, I knew who my leader is, it's Jesus Christ, Amen. That's who I serve. So I'm not being partisan with any of this. I don't really care about any of that. I really don't. My point is that if there was eight years of hope, it was all erased in an instant four years ago. And the country remains in such chaos today. And that does, by the way, splash over the border. And we all know that. But Jesus Christ is our King. All I want to say by that is, the world talks a big game, but is very short on deliverables. It can't deliver on all the rhetoric and the talk. And if we're uncertain about that at all, if my illustration about elections doesn't, doesn't convince you of that, 2020 has leveled a crushing blow on any sense of hope. We're not in control of any of it. But what God offers is guaranteed. This is the promise. Verse 18, in hope, Abraham believed against hope. That's the situation we find ourselves in. That he should become the father of many nations as he had been told. So he gets this promise. Abraham, you're going to be the father of many nations. Verse 19, that promise, he did not weaken in faith. When he considered his own body, this seems impossible that this promise could possibly happen. He did not consider his own body, which, notice Paul says, was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. So, I mean, Abraham's a hundred years old. Sarah's never had a child. She's not going to have a child. They had tried. They weren't going to have any kids. They're now really advanced in years. The phrase is, they were as good as dead. Now listen, I'm, I'm in my mid-50s. 56 is still mid-50s, right? That's still mid-50s? 56? It's not late 50s. I mean, Cheryl's in her late 50s. <laughs> I'm as good as dead. <laughs> she loves me. In some respects, even in your 50s, and those of you who are in your 50s and up, you know this, you're already as good as dead. You know, like the, the list of things that no longer work properly just becomes longer with every birthday. Like the, the operating systems are no longer according to factory specs. The aging systems don't work as they used to. And, and listen, there's so much atrophy and breakdown. I'm just really preaching a very discouraging word to those of you in your 20s, 30s, and 40s. It's coming for you. You too will be as good as dead one day. And listen, the thing about Abraham is he had like almost 50 years on me. As good as dead. And Sarah too. 
She wasn't about to bear a child. She never had, and yet there it is, this promise, you're going to be the father of many nations. And Abraham believed it. John Piper, we've used this definition before, hope is a confident expectation and desire for good things in the future. Love that. A confident expectation and desire for good things in the future. That's what Abraham wanted. He had a confident desire. He wanted good things in the future. God had said, you're going to be the father of many nations, and he believed that. He hoped for it despite the very evident obstacles that stood in the way of that happening. And we should all latch on to that very same hope. Not, not a temporary hope that provides you some political security or some economic advantage. This is not hope that's going to advantage you necessarily in any way in this life. That's not what it's about. It's not selfish like that. It's a hope that fixes its eyes on eternity and the things that God has promised. Not to make our lives more comfortable, to advance the kingdom, to believe God for greater things, and especially to anticipate the eternal kingdom that we'll be a part of by faith. And so do you have that hope? Well, having this promise also strengthens my resolve. And this is, this is really astounding to me, verse 20, because here's Abraham with all of these obstacles in the way. But verse 20 says, no unbelief, no lack of faith made him waver concerning the promise of God. Abraham was unwavering in his faith. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Verse 21 says, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Are you fully convinced? Despite the evidence around you, despite the global pandemic, despite the political insecurity, despite whatever's going on in your home and in your life, are you fully convinced that God is able to do what he had promised? Your cancer, your loss of a loved one, your financial struggles, your estranged relationships the setbacks, the defeats, whatever it is, by virtue of your, of your faith. And, and, and Abraham modeled this for us, just continually glorifying God. Can you continually glorify God for what's going on in your life? That's what strengthened his resolve as he waited for the promise to be fulfilled. No wavering, strong in our faith, fully convinced. I fear that so many believers are actually missing the opportunity that this pandemic is providing us right now. This pandemic is providing us an opportunity to be more fully convinced, to be even more unwavering in our faith. Frankly, Christians need to stop with the conspiratorial nonsense and the oh woe is me whining and instead see this as an opportunity to grow our faith and to give glory to God for what He's doing in the world right now. Because He's going to do what He promised. A pandemic doesn't even move the needle for God. And he promised something, and as far as the entirety of history goes, 2020 isn't all that bad. And it's just one more little thing along the way to the fulfillment of all of God's promises. And if we don't have that perspective, certainly no one outside the church is going to have it. We don't want to look like everyone else. Because we're the sons and daughters of the king, and we have this promise. We ought to be unwavering in our faith. And so all of this should be strengthening our resolve. All right, a couple more and really quickly, and we'll bring this in for a landing. The promise also binds me to all believers. And we see that because all of this un unwavering resolve, verse 22, in the midst of this faith, his faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. In verse 23, it was counted to him was not for his sake alone, verse 24 says, but also for ours. And that's awesome. So this pattern of faith that Abraham is showing, that's for all of us. 
all of Abraham's true descendants, all who believe, all who have faith. And then finally this, the promise rests in the power of the resurrection. Verse 24, the latter part there, it will be counted to us who believe in Him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. Verse 25, Robert Mount says, is like a little creedal statement, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Those two things, absolutely necessary that we would have those for salvation. Jesus is the object of our faith. Jesus is the reason for our hope. Jesus is the foundation of our resolve. Jesus is the means of our salvation. And Jesus is the forgiveness of our sins. Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross secured all of this for us. His resurrection from the dead unleashed the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. For all who would exercise simple faith in Christ. And when we have this real, transforming, life-giving faith in Jesus Christ, we will enjoy the forgiveness of sin. We will practice heartfelt acts of service for Christ. We will understand the depths of the promises that God has given to us, and we'll know the power of the gospel in our own lives. And I want that for myself, and I want that for you. Let's pray. Father, you have been kind and gracious toward us and you have spoken to us again with clarity concerning this matter of faith and yet father we're the ones who cloud it confuse it and i would pray for those right now who are in the room watching on live stream or on demand this week father who who have not yet surrendered their life to Jesus Christ, God, I pray that this would be the moment where they would recognize that it takes simple faith, that they can't do anything to gain favor with you. Simply need to confess that they're a sinner and reach out in faith towards the Savior. And God, for us as, as Christians, it's easy for us to continue to carry on our baggage, to be gripped by guilt, fear, and shame. God, I pray that we would be released of all of these things, that we would leap for joy and sing and have light in our hearts. God, that we would believe the promise, that we would live it out in front of a world that desperately needs to hear that promise and see it being lived out in our lives. So again, we're grateful for this time, Lord. You've blessed us once again. We thank you in Christ's name.